When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. New Orleans, May 1st, 1809. Sir, the extraordinary nature of the communication I am about to make and the interests of the person committed to my discretion will, I hope, excuse my deviation from the ordinary course of my correspondence by addressing you directly. I yesterday had a most particular conversation with Governor Fulch and I found his mind decisively made up as to the course he will pursue should European Spain be subdued by Bonaparte, of which he has no doubt, though he believes the junta may still survive a few months. He is desirous to have an order from that body, before its demise, for the delivery of West Florida to the United States, and says he can enforce the interest and policy of the measure." He desired me to ask for him a small dispatch vessel by which he would immediately write to Cadiz. He made a short pause and proceeded. Now I will open my heart to you. If they do not listen to me, I shall consider myself abandoned by my country and will make direct application to the President of the United States. I mentioned to him the views of the British to Florida. That grows out of the corruption of their understanding. What do they want it for? To go to war with you? They shan't have it, for it is as necessary to the United States as the drawer is to the case. The confidential nature of this communication will, I hope, be apparent, and it deeply interests my honor that it should be treated with entire reserve. I forbear to remark on it, but will observe that I believe, were it advisable, prompt possession might be had— by an indemnity to the officers of the government. With perfect respect, I am, sir, your faithful and obedient servant, James Wilkinson. The Florida question persisted through the Jefferson administration following the Louisiana Purchase, and so naturally, his successor would have to contend with the same quandary. What makes the situation described in our opening quote even more interesting, dear listener, is the role played by General James Wilkinson. Longtime listeners of the podcast will recognize this persistent presence in U.S. presidential history stemming from the days of President Washington all the way up to the Madison presidency. For those who are unfamiliar, Wilkinson is one of the more notorious figures of American history as, though he rose to, and at this point in our narrative, occupied the role of commanding general of the U.S. Army, he had also served as a paid agent of the Spanish government, a traitor in the midst, making deals with authorities in Spanish West Florida. The plot does thicken, does it not? Before you get into that, though, let me take this opportunity to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Stephen of the History of Tammany Hall podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. While Tammany Hall hasn't come up in our narrative just yet, 
we have encountered some of the figures that Stephen is discussing in the early days of what would come to be a pivotal political machine based in New York City, but whose impact would be felt not just locally, but also across the state and the nation. Case in point, the latest episode is on the early life and career of our old friend, Aaron Burr. I've greatly enjoyed the examination that Stephen has done thus far into the landscape from which what became Tammany Hall originated, and look forward to learning more about the political powerhouses that would build up and use the Tammany machine for their own purposes. To listen, go to Tammany Hall Podcast, that's all one word, dot podbean.com. I'll also have a link on the source notes section for this episode on my website, or you can search for History of Tammany Hall Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. It's been a few episodes since we last saw our old friend Wilkinson, episode 3.39 to be exact. At that point, along with engaging in a back-and-forth dispute with Representative John Randolph Roanoke, another infamous name on the podcast, Wilkinson had been cleared of any evidence of wrongdoing in mid-1808 by a board of inquiry that, by its very nature, was inclined to support Wilkinson. In August of that year, Wilkinson, as commanding general of the army, was involved in the effort to post army forces on the Canadian border to enforce the Embargo Act. By October, however, Wilkinson's thoughts were further south. With the Spanish resisting French Emperor Napoleon's efforts to conquer the Iberian Peninsula, something we discussed last episode, Wilkinson argued that the United States should use the situation to its advantage when it came to the Spanish colonies in Latin America. The general argued that this present state of affairs offered an opportunity for, quote, the liberation of the American continent from the shackles of European government. He foresaw the creation of, quote, a distinct community united by common protection, defense, and happiness. Naturally, you can imagine who Wilkinson, as indeed many American leaders at the time, would have envisioned as the leading partner and the one nation truly in charge of this community. As a first step towards this quote-unquote United America, as Wilkinson dubbed it, he asked permission to reach out to the Spanish Captain General of Cuba, Salvador José de Muro y Salazar, the second Marquis of Samorelos. Wilkinson reported back to the administration that Samorelos was, quote, extremely feminine in his exterior and feeble in his intellect, meaning that he would be an easy mark for Wilkinson. Despite a long-standing policy of non-intervention, the outgoing president, Thomas Jefferson, gave Wilkinson the go-ahead to reach out to Samarelos. Naturally, given that this was Wilkinson, his aims were far from purely patriotic. Indeed, Wilkinson, upon his departure from Annapolis, Maryland on January 24, 1809, and in violation of the Embargo Act that was still on the books, brought with him 50 barrels of flour to sell in Cuba for a personal profit. Wilkinson's first stop on his way south was in Norfolk, Virginia, where, at a banquet held in his honor, he toasted to, quote, the new world governed by itself and independent of the old. Wilkinson's ship rounded the tip of Florida and proceeded on to Cuba. Word of his toast in Norfolk had gotten back to Samoyeros, and unfortunately for the general, had not landed so well with the Spanish official. As noted by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, Samorelos remained loyal to the Spanish royal family and, angered by the New World speech, refused to see him. Though he had failed in his initial approach, 
Wilkinson thought that he might be able to enlist the aid of the governor of Spanish West Florida, Vicente Fulch, and thus proceeded to Pensacola. Fulch had worked with Wilkinson over the years, both above the table in their official capacities and under the table in his espionage. Wilkinson thought that Fulch could help to lay the groundwork with Samarillos, but instead, Fulch sent a letter to his colleague in Cuba that Wilkinson, quote, was not to be trusted. Finally, someone realized that James Wilkinson was not a trustworthy person. It's only taken a couple of decades. Seeing that this diplomatic overture was a fruitless endeavor, General Wilkinson finally decided to proceed to what had been his publicly announced destination, the city of New Orleans. Despite the de facto military dictatorship that Wilkinson had established in the Crescent City on his previous stint there in the midst of the Burr Conspiracy, as discussed in episode 3.33, Wilkinson was welcomed back upon his arrival on April 19th with open arms and a dinner in his honor hosted by the merchant community. Rather than subjugate the populace, the general's purpose in New Orleans this go-round was to deal with the nearly 2,000 army troops who had been sent to the city in December. As described by Linkletter, quote, taken from garrisons primarily on the Atlantic coast, and containing a high proportion of hastily trained recruits, both officers and soldiers, they had arrived in a city already overflowing with French refugees fleeing the anti-Napoleon backlash in Cuba. Some had been billeted in the city, the remainder had been housed in tents and temporary wooden barracks across the river. Between the less-than-ideal living conditions and the outbreak of disease that comes from soldiers partaking of the pleasures of a city like New Orleans, Upon Wilkinson's arrival, nearly a third of the troops under his command were unfit for duty, and the numbers under his command were dropping significantly due to desertion. Wilkinson had to take charge and organize this ragtag bunch into a disciplined, well-provisioned force. By the point of Wilkinson's arrival, however, there had been some changes back in Washington. First, shortly after Wilkinson had set sail and before the inauguration of the new president, the outgoing chief executive, Thomas Jefferson, had approved the appointment of two new brigadier generals of the Army, Peter Gonstavolt and Wade Hampton. Needless to say, both were tried and true Democratic Republicans, but also, as noted by Linkletter, quote, in the very last days of his administration, Jefferson was making sure that the general, i.e. Wilkinson, would never again have a monopoly of influence within the Army. Indeed, Hampton was seen as being a rallying point for officers who were against Wilkinson. As noted by historian Theodore Crackle, quote, the seeds of rivalry that Jefferson and then-Secretary of War Henry Dearborn planted bore bitter fruit in the years that followed. The second change for Wilkinson while he was away from the Capitol was that Jefferson had handed over the reins of the presidency to James Madison. And likewise, William Eustis had succeeded Dearborn at the War Department. On April 29th, the new war secretary sent Wilkinson a letter asserting that the force under his command, quote, should be transported either to the high ground in the rear of Fort Adams or in the rear of Natchez. Both points were further up the Mississippi River from New Orleans and thus out of the low-lying wetlands of southeast Orleans Territory. As noted by Linkletter, quote, it is probable, although he denied it, that Wilkinson received this message before the men moved and deliberately ignored it. 
Whether that is the case or not, Wilkinson gave orders for the troops under his command to instead be moved further downriver to a site called Terre Abouf. Ostensibly, this would be a location from which, quote, a defense could be mounted against a naval force coming up the Mississippi. It was also, quote, three feet below the level of the river on the other side of the levee. As a kid, I used to walk with my mom on top of the levee for Bayou Manchac to what was known as the Cypress Flats, a larger body of water where hundreds, if not thousands, of cypress trees broke through the water up towards the sky. The land on the other side of the levee, though technically dry land, was also full of mosquitoes, snakes, and numerous other critters in the still rather swampy woods. Hopefully, that'll give you a bit of an idea of what the soldiers found when they arrived at Teobulf. As a quick side note, present with Wilkinson at this point, and instrumental in organizing the clearing of this new encampment, was someone who we last encountered in episode 3.35, Zebulon Pike. Now elevated to the rank of major, Pike would, by the end of the year, rise again to the rank of lieutenant colonel. As described by Pike biographer Jared Orsi, Pike served as Wilkinson's quote-unquote right-hand man at this time, and it would be Pike who led the workforce who cleared the land and set up the new base for Wilkinson's command. The 52-year-old general, meanwhile, was occupying his time in New Orleans in the company of the 22-year-old Celestine Laveau Trudeau, the daughter of the Surveyor General of the Territory. We last discussed Wilkinson's wife Nancy and her battle with tuberculosis back in episode 3.33. Since her death on February 23, 1807, from all accounts, Wilkinson had remained single. Just over two years later, though, it seems that he was ready for romance once more. While one wouldn't necessarily wish loneliness on anyone, one also has to question how distracted Wilkinson was with this love interest, as rather than move with the troops to Terrebuff, James retained his headquarters in New Orleans to be close to Celestine. Thus, he was not present when, in late June, the heavy rains for which Louisiana is infamous began to fall once more, and the river overlapped the levee. Again, from Linkletter, quote, Above and below Terrebuff, the water broke through the embankments until the lower ground became lakes and swamps. Trodden down by hundreds of men, the clover fields turned to mud. Within the tents, the men lay in pools of water until in mid-July, the boats were broken up to make wooden floors. The latrines, long makeshift ditches known as sinks, which had been dug at the back of the camp, overflowed, and raw sewage spread over the ground, contaminating water supplies, spreading disease, and attracting clouds of flies. Though cases of sickness had fallen since the initial move to Terrebuff, as you can imagine, with these conditions, that trend reversed itself and surpassed the previous abysmal figures. Wilkinson would finally transfer his headquarters to the encampment to direct relief efforts, but it is rather a case of too little, too late in rectifying the predictable consequences of a short-sighted decision. We'll leave Wilkinson and his suffering troops for now, though, and turn our attention back to Washington City. The 10th Congress had, in its final session, passed a bill calling the 11th Congress in session on, quote, the fourth Monday of May, months earlier than its usual convening. 
though I haven't been able to find anything stating this definitively, one has to imagine that the ongoing diplomatic tensions with Britain were what prompted Congress to come into an early special session. However, by that point, as discussed last episode, President Madison had already issued his proclamation based on the agreement reached with British Minister to the U.S. David Erskine to resolve the issues between the two nations. Thus, the nation's capital was in rather of a jovial mood when Congress convened on May 22, 1809. Speaker of the House Joseph Farnham, Democratic-Republican from Massachusetts, was re-elected that day, and Congress awaited Madison's special message, which was carried over and read by his private secretary, Isaac Coles, the next day. One can imagine the elation that Madison felt being able to report such favorable news to the first Congress to convene during his administration. Now that matters with Britain were getting on better footing, the president reported that he was shifting his focus to diplomacy with France, and he charged the Congress with deciding whether the military buildup that had been authorized by the previous Congress was still needed. As Madison wrote, quote, It will rest with the judgment of Congress to decide how far the change in our external prospects may authorize any modifications of the laws relating to the Army and Navy establishments. As described by Henry Adams, quote, The 11th Congress differed little in character from its predecessor. The mediocrity of the 10th Congress continued to mark the character of the 11th. One key change, though, was that Representative John Wales Epps, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, became the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, succeeding George W. Campbell of Tennessee, who had left Congress to assume a judicial position back in his home state. If this name sounds familiar to you, dear listener, it should, as Epps was the son-in-law of former President Thomas Jefferson. Beyond this change, though, there is little to remark on in the actual business of Congress in this session. However, it did prompt a revival of the social scene in the Capitol and gave the Madisons an opportunity to establish a new milieu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The surveyor buildings in the district, Benjamin Latrobe, have been hard at work making purchases on the Madison's behalf for the president's house. Some of the purchases made in the early days of the administration included, quote, $2,150 for three mirrors, $556.15 for China, $458 for a pianoforte especially requested by Dolly Madison, and $220.90 for knives, forks, bottle stands, waiters, and andirons. The Madisons, being slave owners, had naturally brought some of the people they enslaved to Washington to serve them in the president's house, but also had to hire a few white locals for domestic work, including Jean-Pierre Sousson as his steward. Madison also built up the wine cellar at the president's house, quote, with Madeira, port, and champagne imported from France. After a couple of months of preparation and with the convening of the new Congress, the Madisons decided that they were ready to throw open their doors and invite in Washington society. Dolly's intended location for her drawing rooms, the Oval Room, was still not complete at the end of May, 
but work on a smaller parlor, which had previously been Jefferson's sitting room, had been rushed to ensure that it could host public functions until the larger room was finished. Thus, on May 31, 1809, James and Dolly Madison welcomed guests to the president's house. In the quote-unquote sunflower yellow room, as described by historian Catherine Algor, quote, visitors were especially impressed with the silk fringe that trimmed all the draperies and valances. In perhaps a sly political statement, the fireboard in the fireplace boasted the same yellow damask, fluted in a rising sun pattern. This was a dramatic room, calculated to impress and excite. It contained all the elements of the accepted standards of refinement, its bright color and mirrors reflecting and multiplying light, the shiny satin furniture supplying smoothness. Dolly would play to the room as well, often dressing in buff or yellow when she hosted occasions there. Once the oval room was complete, her drawing room events would move there, and the parlor would be where Dolly, quote, received callers and visitors of both sexes, and everyone, from locals to legislators, conducted politics face-to-face. As noted by historian William Seale, quote, the key to the success of the drawing rooms was Dolly Madison. Kind-hearted and open, she was more approachable than Mrs. Washington and not as threatening as was Mrs. Adams. Indeed, a month after the first drawing room, the administration would see a breakthrough in pushing its agenda through the Senate. As noted last episode, John Quincy Adams' appointment as U.S. Minister to Russia had been deemed, quote, expensive and unnecessary by the Senate in March. Between the new social influence on the political scene in Washington and the growing concerns over Napoleon's ambitions in Europe, the Senate changed its mind and on June 27th confirmed Adams' nomination by a vote of 19 to 7. Only two Democratic-Republican senators continued to oppose the nomination, along with five Federalists, including Adams' successor as U.S. Senator James Lloyd and Adams' former Senate colleague Timothy Pickering. No matter. As described by Adams' biographer Samuel Flagg Bemis, Adams was committed, quote, to devote all his powers to the support of the administration, convinced that it would aim at the welfare of the whole union. It would take a couple of months for Adams to wrap up his affairs, but on August 5th, John Quincy, his wife Louisa Catherine, and their infant son Charles Francis boarded a ship at Boston Harbor bound for St. Petersburg. As they made their way east, news was traveling west across the Atlantic of recent developments in Europe. When we left French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte last episode, he was shifting over to Central Europe to counter Austria's invasion of Bavaria. With much of the French army tied down in the stalemate of the Peninsular War to the west, the Austrians were able to easily take eastern Bavaria while other Austrian forces took Warsaw and launched assaults in Italy and the Tyrol. French forces on the Italian peninsula were faced with, quote, a wave of agrarian unrest. Historian Charles Esdale suggests that, had there been uprisings in Prussia or Westphalia around the same time, Napoleon may have truly been in trouble. Despite the best efforts of a couple of Prussian officers, though, the majority of Germany remained quiet. And thus, Napoleon, once he was on the scene, was able to quickly focus his attention on securing Bavaria and the Kingdom of Italy. 
Besides just pushing back the Austrians, however, Napoleon used the opportunity to rid himself of another thorn in his side. On May 17, 1809, the French emperor announced that he was annexing the entirety of the Papal States, that territory on the Italian peninsula that was under the Pope's direct control. Napoleon had challenged papal authority before, but not like this. On June 10th, French troops marched into Rome to seize the city. In response, Pope Pius VII excommunicated Napoleon, and soon after, Napoleon ordered the Pope seized from the Quirinal Palace and taken into captivity, first in Grenoble, then he was moved to Avignon, before finally being held in Savona. As described by Estelle, quote, In this exile, he, Pius, was treated with respect and courtesy, but nothing could change the facts of the situation, especially as Pius made it doubly obvious by refusing to cooperate with his jailer's attempts to press upon him the trappings of a court. Pius wanted to make it abundantly clear to all that Bonaparte was holding captive against his will the supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church and the Vicar of Christ. This power play would not go unnoticed, but before Napoleon could turn to any fallout from that move, he had to move against the Austrians. Not only did Napoleon's diminished force struggle against the Austrians upon their first engagements in mid to late April, but the French emperor himself was injured when, quote, a spent bullet from a carbine, probably fired from a considerable distance, struck Napoleon in the right ankle. The emperor put on a brave face when word started spreading of his injury, but by the time he got back to his field headquarters, he fainted from the pain. Despite the initial setbacks, slowly but surely, the French started turning the tide and forced the Austrians under the command of Archduke Karl into retreat. By May, Napoleon was leading his troops towards Vienna, and they arrived on the outskirts of the Austrian capital by May 10th. The French emperor, as described by his biographer Alan Schoen, quote, sent a delegation of key officers to negotiate the city's surrender, but they were cut down, all of them severely slashed without warning by a Hungarian cavalry unit. A furious Napoleon immediately ordered a heavy bombardment of Vienna for the next 24 hours. By the 13th, Vienna was in French hands. Despite this loss for the Austrians, Archduke Karl had escaped with a force of 115,000 men, and other Austrian forces were still in the field. Napoleon only had 82,000 under his command. The war was far from won, and the Austrian troops had destroyed the bridges that would have allowed the French to easily cross the Danube, as they had in 1805, leading up to the infamous Battle of Austerlitz. Napoleon had to turn his mind to crossing the Danube while it, quote, was flooding and rising daily as a result of melting spring snows and very heavy rains. As he had done in the past, the French emperor was willing to wage a wild all-in gamble. He got his army engineers to work building pontoon bridges across the Danube so that he could throw the two corps under his command at the Austrians. By late May, he was moving troops across, but the question became, whether he'd be able to transport a sizable force across in time. The initial confrontation at Aspern Essling resulted in a French retreat. As described by Schoen, quote, Napoleon remained stunned. Never before had the Austrians fought so valiantly. And thanks to his own impatience, 
he had launched an attack against the enemy's main force when he not only lacked half his army, but had failed even to secure the vital logistical communications, his very lifeline across the Danube. The only saving grace for Napoleon at this point was Archduke Karl's lack of follow-up in the aftermath of this victory. While the Austrian forces sat in their position and the marshals and generals under the French emperor's command pointed fingers at one another far to the feet, Napoleon regrouped. Again from Schoen, quote, Napoleon's stubbornness and genius rose to the fore. He gradually formulated a new plan of attack, for he had no intention of abandoning Vienna and Austria now. While building up his own forces, Napoleon attempted to draw Russian Tsar Alexander into the fray, but the Tsar demurred, asserting that, quote, the destruction of the Austrian monarchy would be a calamity for the whole of Europe. Finally, at the beginning of July, Napoleon was ready. On the evening of July 4th, 1809, the French forces began their assault on the Austrians. Schelm asserts that, quote, Napoleon's attack was one of the most remarkable achievements of its kind in modern French military history. Though the French assault was halted at one point, the push would continue, and ultimately, the Austrian resolve would wear down through sheer attrition. As Schelm describes, quote, with the slaughter and his own casualties reaching phenomenal proportions, outnumbered from the start and apparently unconfident in his own plan while continuing to face the staggering French ferocity, Archduke Karl conceded defeat and began an orderly withdrawal of his troops from this immense battlefield. The Battle of Walgram, as it would come to be called, would result in 37,146 casualties for the Austrians versus an estimated 32,500 dead or wounded for the French. Though it is noted, the true figure for French casualties is not certain and is likely much higher than reported. Though it was a decisive victory, Wagram was a hard-fought victory in a desperate campaign, especially considering that back home in France, there are increased rumblings of discontent. Again from Scholm, quote, Parents bemoan the disappearance of 270,000 young men in less than a year's time. This in a population of around 27 million. Emperor Napoleon may have thirsted for victory, but we shall explore as the series goes on, dear listener, just how much the French people were still aligned with their leader. Before you start wondering whether this podcast has transformed into a Napoleonic history podcast, rest assured that all of this will have a major impact on what is to come in our narrative of U.S. presidential history. The explanation of that, though, will have to wait until another time. Before we part ways, I do have some thank yous to make. Thanks again to Stephen of the History of Tammany Hall podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out his podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found once you're done here. Thanks also to the Itinerant Band for providing clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as our intro and outro music. Special thanks to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian's assistance for your podcast or next audio project, you can find out more about his services at yourpodcastpal.com. You can find links to more information about the History of Tammany Hall podcast, the Itinerant Band, and Your Podcast Pal 
on the source notes section for this episode on the website, which is Presidency's Podcast, all one word, dot com. There, you'll also find resources to learn more about each of the U.S. presidents, as well as links to past episodes. You can also now go to the website to leave a rating and review. I recently had a five-star review left on Apple Podcasts by DC3 Amsterdam entitled A Work of Passion that reads as follows, quote, Our host Jerry does an incredible job. Every installment is well-researched and presented going into many details that are missed in the U.S. schools that focus on the high point, key dates, testable details, and the quote-unquote national myth. The podcast goes much deeper into the presidents and their lives with all the strengths and weaknesses explored. Every person is flawed in some ways, be it decision-making, skills, leadership, risk-taking, messaging, etc., The podcast touches on all the issues, including slavery, ambition, and more, to present the whole person with all the flaws. Makes you think and assess and understand the types of information available to the early presidents for decision-making. The Seat at the Table series, Cabinet Members, is interesting. It is a perspective and assessment that in some cases is less enjoyable for me as assessments have too much totally an agreement in the discussions. That said, well-researched and incredibly informative. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, DC3 Amsterdam, for your kind words, as well as your honest assessment. The decision to do the Seat at the Table series was one I carefully considered, as I knew it might not be everyone's cup of tea due to it being a less formal conversation rather than a scripted narrative. However, I hope folks have gotten something valuable out of it. For my part, it has helped me in better understanding some of the cabinet members that have been in our narrative for a bit, but that we haven't gotten a chance to do a deeper dive on as it was outside of the scope of our main narrative. I greatly appreciate all the feedback I've gotten in this process, and thanks to all of you who have left a rating and review in the past. It's now easier than ever to do, so if you have a couple of minutes and want to share with others why they should give presidencies a try, head to presidenciespodcast.com and go to Reviews at the top of the screen and select the drop-down menu for the Leave a Review option. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can reach out via social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. again, all one word. Finally, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. It means so much to have all of you on this journey through presidential history with me, and I look forward to forging ahead on this path together. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 
for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.